You're listening to Diary of a Congresswoman, a series of conversations with Teresa Ledger-Fernandez. I'm Mary Charlotte Domandi. New Mexico has an old pre-Roe v. Wade law that limits a woman's right to make her own reproductive choices. Right now, the New Mexico legislature is considering a repeal of that old law from the 1960s. Considering the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court, those repeals, not just in New Mexico but all over the country, at least in blue and purple states, could affect the lives of millions of women. I wanted to ask you today about New Mexico because, I mean, you're you're in state, you're in district, and New Mexico is having its state legislative session, and one of the bills up for consideration is repealing an old abortion ban in case Roe v. Wade is overturned on a federal level. Do you have any sense from maybe talking to your colleagues or whatever, whether this kind of thing is happening in state legislatures all over the country? There has been uh, several of the Planned Parenthood, NARA, and even people in Emily's list have argued that states that have a democratic legislature have to start taking state action. There was a very interesting op-ed that was done quite a while back maybe at the last Senate confirmation, that said that women need to think about taking it back to the states and not relying on the constitutional protection. And that that might be a good thing anyway, because then what you're doing is you're building the support in the local communities and that needing to go back to state versus the federal control might allow you to have even greater impact And then it stops nationalizing it and stops making it this divisive issue on a national level. And so there is a concerted effort by different groups to look at that issue and look at which states can you do something like that. The problem is, is that, you know, there are some states that that's not an option. I mean, let's face it, New Mexico is a sanctuary state in terms of providing the full panoply of reproductive health services. So we have women who will drive 1,000, 2,000 miles to get abortion services. And in COVID, I mean, they're driving straight because they're afraid to stop. I mean, it's just horrible what we are putting women through in other states because their state legislatures you know, are so regressive on these issues. So on a state level, what you're talking about would work in states like New Mexico and maybe Colorado and so on, but not necessarily in states like Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. Until you change those states. And I think that that's part of the issue is when you're looking at making states blue, it's not just so that you can elect a president. It's so that you can start having policies within those states and within those communities that are more responsive to these issues that we raise at a national level, for example, you know, the Raise the Wage Act to full services for women. So, I mean, I think that that's part of what you want to do is have really good self-determination and self-governance on your issues at every level of government. So, you know, I think it's, a. I think in some ways you use this period of darkness with regards to what our Supreme Court looks like now to say, what do we then do? This idea of being nimble on your feet, of needing to not get stuck to just, we're going to preserve it in the, in the federal judiciary, but rather we need to preserve it in other places. I think this concept of self-governance and the fact that 
you know, it's held up as a good thing, except when it applies to people like women or whatever group you're talking about. And I think of the movement to ban women's choice as basically the government forcing women to bring unwanted pregnancies to term against their will, which seems like the opposite of what not only Democrats, but a lot more libertarian people would or should desire, you know, government not making choices for people against their will. Mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> I agree. So is there a national initiative in Congress to address women's reproductive rights on a federal level legislatively? I haven't seen a lot. I mean, I've been there eight days, <laughs> you know. No, uh, so I can't speak to that. I don't know enough about that strategy. You know, we won into the problem of the Senate on those issues. You know, whether we could get it. I mean, we can get so much more through the House, but I don't know where that sits on the Senate level. But that's the same thing, right? You could do this legislatively and not rely on the Constitution as long as you don't have the filibuster (laughs) and could pass something by 51. And as long as some of those more conservative Democrat senators would be willing to go along with that. But, you know, they might. I mean, I'm not an expert on that to speak as to where this sits in the Senate. Anything else that you want to look at today? Um, What did I do today? Oh, I did some great stuff today. I was talking to some of the other congresswomen, the Latina congresswomen in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. It's the Latinas who are the deans of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus because they're the longest serving members which is really kind of neat because it's three women, Lucille Roybal-Allard, Nidia Velasquez, and then Grace Napolitano. So I just had a wonderful conversation with Grace Napolitano, who you know was sharing with me her philosophy about representing her district and some of the things that she just clearly takes great delight in doing 20 some years in, you know, that she's served for such a long time. But, you know, getting word out on the appointments to the Naval Academy and and working really hard to make sure that the appointments to the Naval Academy, uh, that there's a lot more brown and and black, as she put it, there's a lot more color in those appointments. And, you know, how she does that and how she addresses veteran issues. And it's just such a wonderful sharing of ideas and information. It was just lovely. Because, I mean, that's the thing is that a congressional position, I mean, you're asking me, national positions about what's this and what's that and what's your strategy. But so much of what a Congress person does is serve their district in lots of ways that you don't really think about, but we recommend the appointments to the academies. There is a role that the Congress and Congress people play in that. And it's true. So we are already talking about, in my office, we were talking about making sure that the public school in Mora High School knew about these academy applications. So we had already begun the discussions about how do we make sure that some of our outlying areas are very aware of these opportunities. Because uh, you go to West Point, one, you're not paying, you know, it's free, and it's an incredible education. And if you're interested in serving in the service, this is the way to do it. Do it at the top make sure that opportunity is there. So that was a a neat thing that I was able to do this morning is just brainstorm with one of my colleagues about what she does, you know, and that will help inform what we do with the goal of making opportunities more accessible to our 
kids in the rural areas. And I have to say, it really points out the reality that the social fabric is made of just countless tiny threads, and each mm-hmm. board to which a new person is appointed makes a difference in somebody's lives that most of us will never even know about, but it all constitutes the big fabric. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that there are as many points of that thread and or that warp and that weave that go into those places where it's been bare, right? There haven't been any connections. There haven't been any threads reaching out into those districts. And that's what we need because then that one individual from that one family goes back and there you have it. We had my roommate at Yale was a Sanchez, Graciela Sanchez. She came from a family of like nine, San Antonio, very working class. He was a mechanic, mother didn't work. Uh, and they had nine kids, and one of the oldest kids ends up at Yale. And then before you know it, they have five kids at, Yale, at, at the Ivy Leagues. And when they graduate, they literally get a bunch of vans and bring 20 people up for the graduation, and they go back. And the three that I know of, they're doing great work in the community. So that pipeline starts, which wouldn't have existed before. So the warp and the weave needs to reach out and include lots of different areas because then it transforms. That one point of contact multiplies. It has a multiplier effect that you don't even know where it's going to go. As you mentioned, you don't know where it's going to go, but it's going to make some ripples. That's for sure. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening today. Please go to congressdiary.com for more info and other podcasts and to connect with us on social media. And if you have any questions or comments, including questions for the Congresswoman, please email me at diary at radiocafe.org.